being the foundation. And then we moved into this uh, letter of 1 Timothy. And this letter of 1 Timothy has been speaking to two people particularly. One was to Timothy himself as a pastor, guiding him and leading him. And then also teaching and, and speaking into the life of the church at Ephesus. And we've been concentrating our thoughts and thinking about that local church and thinking about what it meant to them and what it means to us. And so this is the last in this series. Uh, God willing, next uh, Sunday, uh, Manuel will be preaching. And after that, we'll be going back to our series in the Gospel of John. And the Gospel of John, the part that we're looking at, we'll be looking straight from uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Jesus there, and going into the Easter story of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And after that, we might come back again to some other aspects uh, of church life that we haven't looked at already. So we'll be looking at this passage, and I want us just to pray and commit our time uh, to the Lord now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have everything in your word that we need for this life. And everything we need in this, in your word, to be able to point us to eternal life. But, oh Lord God, your word on its own is just a book. But it's not just a book because it's not your word on its own. It's your word that's been given to us through the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit's guidance and with the Holy Spirit breathing life onto it and into it as we study it, it comes alive to us. And so we pray that we would this morning interact with your living word through the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh Lord God, we beg of you that you would pour out your spirit upon each of us this morning so that we may know you speaking to us through your word, through me, your servant, this morning. May you take away anything that would hinder us, anything that would distract us, anything that would draw us away from listening to your voice. I pray that you would help me and enable me to be able to preach and proclaim and apply and explain what your word is saying to us this day. But most of all, may your Holy Spirit take this and bring it into our hearts and our lives and apply it at our point of need. And may that be done to the honor and the glory of your great and holy name. Help us now, we plead. In Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen. Amen. So the series, we've called it uh, Your Life, Church Life. This last little while, we've just been thinking about relationships within the church. And we, 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 see, we saw from uh, the, the beginning of... Uh, of chapter 5, as we came into that, that we have relationships with each other. And that's to be like a family, a family of respect, a family of purity, younger ones looking up to the older ones as they would to parents, as a father or a mother, as treating each other as brothers and sisters in Christ with all purity, which would be like a family caring for one another. And then we saw that there was a relationship within the church that we're to look out for the needy, to look out for those that are with need. And in those days, those 2,000 years in that church in Ephesus, it was particularly those that were widows that were needy. Now it's 
a variety of different people, but it's those with real needs that the church is to care for and look out for. And as a church here, we need to be looking out for each other, caring for one another, just like family. And there's a relationship with the leaders. We need to take care of our leaders. We need to respect our leaders. We need to choose our leaders carefully. In fact, what we want is God to choose our leaders and God to guide us in the way our leaders should be. And then we moved on from looking at those relationships a couple of weeks back to what was a very tricky situation at the church then. And that was the situation of slaves and their masters worshipping together. And as soon as we mentioned the word slave, as I was saying last week, we have all sorts of ideas that come to our heads. So we had Quite a bit of time last week thinking about what slaves were like in the first century so we could understand what that was, what the context was. And then we thought of these slaves in the early church and the wonder of what happened that we have all become one in Christ. And so, as God's word tells us, there's neither male nor female, there's neither bond nor slave, there's free or slave, there is neither male or female, and we're all one in Christ. And so there's this new entity, but how did that make everyday work? And so slaves were told that they had to obey their masters. And elsewhere in scriptures, masters were told that they should look after their slaves properly and appropriately. And as we were thinking of this, we realized that there's a picture and a pattern of slavehood, if you like, or servanthood within God's word. And we saw that the ultimate slave, the ultimate servant, was the Lord Jesus Christ who came here to save us from our sins. And as he is the ultimate slave, as we put it in the context of last week's passage, as he gave up his life for the sins of his people so that we could be saved, so that we could be brought into God's family, we realize that we as his children are called to be slaves, to follow him, to obey him, to look out and to care for each other. And we thought of that particularly in the workplace environment, in the university environment, when we are under the authority of our bosses or under the authority of our lecturers. And we had this question, this thought, what is your advert for Christ and the gospel like? What does your life say? Does your life point people to Christ in a positive way? Or does it make people think, is that what it's like to be a Christian? They're just two-faced. They're just hypocrites. They're just whatever. And so we have this huge responsibility to remember that we are here as ambassadors. And as ambassadors, we are slaves. And all these metaphors get mixed up. But we are to be Christ-like. And that's sort of where this last chapter comes and, and brings things together. You see, the, in many ways, this last chapter moves from speaking to the church in, in general and, and more sort of particularly to speaking to uh, Timothy himself. And, and so it's like Paul's rounding up the letter with, with some, a summary. 
on, on Sunday evenings, and this Sunday evening will be the same as, as normal Sunday evenings at 7 o'clock on Zoom. We will get together, and we will discuss the sermon. And, and some of the, the guys that lead that time, they ask others, what is your take-home? What is your take-home? What's the, what's the summary? What's the big thing that you are taking home from this morning's sermon? And I think in many ways, this last little sort of chapter, this last little section is, is Paul giving Timothy his take-home. Timothy, this, this is the executive summary. This is what you should be thinking about. This is how you should be bringing this all together. This is your take-home. And so as we go through this passage, there's a lot that's been said to Timothy particularly as a pastor. But I also want to, to, to apply it to ourselves as a church. What does that mean to us as a church? It meant that to Timothy. It means that to pastors. What does that mean to us as uh, a church? And so the first heading that I've got for us as we go through this uh, section today is good teachers. Good teachers. Timothy was called to be a, a good teacher. And, and we see this in the last part of verse 2, and it extends on uh, from there. Teach and urge these things. Teach and urge these things. What things? Well, everything that's gone before. The whole of this letter is, is then being given to Timothy, and Timothy's been told, teach these things. Teach these things. But not just teach these things, he's been told to urge these things. And so we're seeing here that the primary role of the pastor, the teaching elder, is to teach and to urge. Now, the church as a whole is responsible for people's welfare. We've seen that. We're to look after and to take care of the needy. But that's not your pastor's primary responsibility. Your church has responsibility to ensure that there is fellowship, to ensure that there is a, a good unity of people communing with each other, that there are, there are programs, that there are times when we can meet together. But that's not your pastor's primary responsibility. The, the primary role of the pastor, as seen here in this letter to Timothy, is this. His primary role is to teach and to urge, to teach and to urge, to, to, to preach the word. And this is both done in a formal way, on a Sunday, at, at meetings like this, and it's done in an informal way, on a one-to-one -one or in a small Bible study. And this is so important, because sadly nowadays, the role of the pastor, the teaching elder, is, is being changed. And, and, and the elder, the, the teaching elder, the pastor, the preacher, is not just a lecturer. A, a lecturer only teaches. A, a, a lecturer, and it's a good job, don't get me wrong, it's an important role. And I'm not saying only as a negative, but that's, that's their only target. A, a lecturer is only wanting to give you information. And as you have that information, you may they go on and use that information to pass an exam. But their role isn't to change you. That Their role is just to educate you, to give you information. And, and the pastor, the teaching elder, is far much more than just giving information. The pastor is not a keynote speaker. 
He's not someone to be wheeled out on, on the Sunday like a TED talk and to give some motivational speech. A pastor is not just a life coach. You see, a life coach so many in these days is someone who just urges. He urges. He, he encourages you to do great things and achieve great things. But what we see here and what God wants of his preachers and what Paul was telling Timothy to do was to do those two things together, was to teach and to urge, to teach and to urge. A life coach just urges. Well, what's the point? There's no teaching. There's nothing backing this. And the lecturer just teaches and there's no change. And what the preacher should be doing and his primary responsibility of the preacher teaching elder is this set out here, is to teach and to urge. And so we open God's word. And as God's word's opened, we teach from it. And as we teach from God's word, it is applied. And when we apply God's word, that is when the urging happens. And so the pastor should be, the preacher should be urging people to repentance. He should be urging them in change. C.H. Spurgeon said this, he said, where the application begins, there the sermon begins. If there's no application to a sermon, it's a lecture, it's a talk. It needs to be applied. It needs to be urged into your life. And in absolute reality, neither the teaching or the urging can be done by the preacher alone. The Holy Spirit is needed for that to happen. But the role of the pastor through the power and the unction of the Holy Spirit is to teach and to urge. And I'm laboring this point because one day, God willing, you will escape Cyprus. Yeah? It's going to happen. I'm sure it will do. Not all of you are destined to stay in Cyprus forever and ever and ever. In fact, none of us are. We'll all get to heaven one day. But most of you will move on from Cyprus at some stage. And when you move on from Cyprus, you're going to need to choose a new church. Yeah? You're going to have to choose a church. And you've got to make sure that you don't just attend a church that says it's Bible-believing. But if you're going to attend a church, if you're going to choose a new church, you need to choose a new church where God's word is taught and applied. Where it's taught and applied. Oftentimes, the urging that we have in a sermon, the application from a sermon, is not pleasant. We we don't often want to hear that application. Often the application means that there's something that needs changing in our life, that something needs to be worked on. But we need it. And what you need and what I need is preachers and pastors that are faithful to that task. And so when you do move on, Try the churches out. Listen to their preaching. Maybe you can go online nowadays and listen to a few sermons beforehand and ask the Lord to guide you and say, is this teaching and urging 
together. Because I need to be in a church where there is teaching and urging. And, And as we hear the truth preached, we should pray that as the preacher applies that truth, that the Holy Spirit would apply it so that we would grow in godliness. You see, that's the aim of preaching. The aim of preaching, Timothy was told to teach, and then in verse 3 it says, sound words, if you teach the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. The aim of preaching is not to entertain. The aim of preaching is not to educate. The aim of preaching is so that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the congregation would become more godly. In the first instance, that needs salvation. You cannot be godly without being saved and brought into God's kingdom. But we need to become godly. And the preaching of the word is what God uses in our hearts and our lives to bring us into godliness. It talks here of sound words in verse 3. And and that word sound is, is... derived from the medical word to be healthy. Timothy was to have healthy teaching. And his healthy teaching would keep God's people healthy. It would help them to bear the fruits of godliness. Preaching is not just for salvation. That's the start. And if you end up in a church that is only preaching salvation, you're not going to get onto the next stage. You need to grow in godliness. And the fruit of salvation is people becoming godly. And so as you move on, when you are assessing if you should join a church, what you should be looking for, yes, in the first place, is to see if the word has been taught and applied, and then see, are the people becoming godly? Are your brothers and sisters that you're going to be with, are they becoming godly? You see, large numbers flocking to a church is not the mark of a good church. It's not the mark of it. It might be. It might not be. But it's not. It doesn't doesn't mean that if there's lots of people going there, it's a good church. And, And impressive resources are not the mark of a good church. The fact that there is an amazing building, a huge auditorium. And if you go to some parts of the world, there's a library and a coffee shop and and a donate vendor uh, and all sorts of other things. Or if you go to to Nigeria, if it's a huge complex that can fit 10,000, 20,000 people, that is not a mark of a good church. And an amazing worship experience isn't necessarily the mark of a good church. The mark of a good church is if it is preaching Christ and Christ crucified. The mark of a good church is if it is preaching Christ and Christ crucified and the people are growing in godliness now we're going to come back to this idea of growing in godliness in 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 a moment and as 
Paul is, is writing this letter. He gets to the end of this section and he writes that amazing uh, doxology. And as, as the doxology was there shared and as, as uh, our, our brother was, was reading it, it ends uh, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And when that amen was said, we, we responded and said amen. And, but it, it wasn't a finish. I remember as a child, we were always waiting for the amen. Because the amen meant home time. The amen meant we could start eating our meal. The amen was the end, yes. And here he is, and he gets to the end of his letter. He says amen, and verse 17, he starts off again. What's going on here, Paul? What's happened? He's that classic preacher, isn't he? One of the things that I always tell young men as they're preaching is to finish and finish well. Don't, don't, don't say I'm finishing and then carry on for another 5, 10, 20 minutes. That's going to kill you, yeah? So what, what's going on here? And I think this is what happened. I don't know, but I think this is kind of what happened. Is he said that amen, and then he read his letter again, yeah? And he hadn't got cut and paste in those days. It's written on a scroll. If he had cut and paste, that last section would be back in the main body. I'm sure of it. But this is like, no, I just need to add these things. These things, it's like a PS at the end of a letter, postscript. He needed just to, to say these things. And so he comes back to, back to it, and he comes back to the, 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 this church. And he comes back to it uh, for Timothy. And he says to Timothy in verse 20, he says, uh, guard, this, guard this deposit. There's an there's a exhortation, and, and there's a command, and there's a, a warning to Timothy, by the way of, of, of good preaching. And it's very easy for us to apply this to those who are preaching and teaching, like Timothy was. And in many ways, that's the main emphasis of this passage. But as, we, as that's limited to a very small group of people, and as we're here together as a church, I want to make some, some practical application uh, for all of us. Now, as, as he comes here to this PS, if you like, to Timothy in verse 20, there is an exhortation. There's a command and there's a warning. And the exhortation to Timothy is to guard the deposit entrusted to you. Timothy was given a gift. Timothy was given ability. That ability was to be able to preach and to urge. And Paul was saying, guard it. It's been entrusted to you. Hold on to it. Develop it. Elsewhere he's been told to develop it and, and, and make it stronger and to work at it. And so that's an exhortation to preachers and to teachers. As you have this gift, guard it. Develop it. It's been given. It's been entrusted to you. Use it wisely. Develop it. But for, for, for those of you that are not preachers, you need to remember this. Pray for your pastors and preachers and teachers that they would guard that deposit. God is... A military word. Uh, and the whole sort of military language has been thrust upon us in a new way as we're in day 11 of the, of the war in uh, the Ukraine. And you see young men guarding their houses, guarding the, the military areas. And does a guard fall asleep? No, it's hard work. They have to labor at it. And, and your pastors, your preachers and teachers need to work hard at this. And so you can help them by praying for them. You can help them by encouraging them. 
And then there's this command. Timothy is commanded to avoid irreverent babble, contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Well, he's going to guard this deposit of truth, this, this gift, and he's to avoid the rubbish that's there. There's a lot of rubbish out there. And, and Timothy was to avoid it. And as you pray for your pastors and preachers, you need to pray that they will be kept from the temptation of going down that wrong path. There's lots of wrong paths. There's lots of wrong teaching out there. And, and your pastors, your preachers, your teachers, they're men. And they can fail and they can get caught up in this. And you should be praying for them that they will be kept from that. And then there's a warning. And this is why you should be praying for it. And this is why they should be keeping this exhortation and command. The warning is here for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. You see, a preacher needs your prayers because his, his work is a huge responsibility. And your faith and your godliness and your spiritual growth are tied up with your pastor, with your preaching elder, your teacher. And so you should be praying to God that he would keep them from going off course because if the preacher goes off course, then what happens? You may go off course. And so you need to pray because I'm sure you don't want to swerve from the faith. And so because you don't want to swerve from the faith, you should be praying that the pastors, the preachers, the teachers are going to be those that guard the deposit, that those that avoid irreverent babbling, that those are kept faithful so that the church, you and I, wouldn't swerve from the faith. The church needs good teachers. And that's a huge responsibility and call on those who are called to teach and preach. But just as the church needs us good preachers, the church needs a congregation praying for their pastors, praying for their preachers and teachers that they would do it and do it well and do it to God's glory. Because the flip side of good teachers is false teachers. And there's quite a bit about false teachers in this last section. And we see it particularly in verses 3 to 6. Uh, what is false teaching? Well, the passage tells us it's a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Timothy is exhorted to teach and preach and bring this good doctrine that brings people to godliness. But the false teachers, what they do, what they bring, is doctrine that doesn't agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not Jesus' teaching, and it doesn't bring people to godliness. Now this verse, this passage, this area started with teach and urge these things. And if we just flick back, there's uh, in Timothy chapter 3, there's this... A uh, few verses that were, we, we thought of may have been a, a, a song, uh, may have been uh, a creed of, of the church. Uh, and in verse uh, 16, it talks about the mystery of godliness. 
And, and this mystery of godliness starts with, he was manifest in the flesh. What is to be preached? What is to be taught? What is this uh, teaching that accords with godliness? Well, it's this. It's this great confession. He was manifest in the flesh. And if you can remember back to that sermon, we saw that was Jesus. Jesus came as a man. God came to this world as a man in Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus Christ come to do? Well, he was vindicated by the Spirit when Jesus rose from the dead. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Jesus died on the cross for the sins of his people. And on the cross, he bore the sins of all those who call upon his name and believe in him and trust on him. And all of those that do that, we have been resurrected with him through his uh, resurrection. And, and so he's vindicated by the Spirit. He was resurrected. And he was seen by angels. And that was both at his uh, birth and then at his uh, baptism. And then in the incarnation. Uh, sorry, the incarnation. And then at, at his ascension. And then his resurrection. All these different times, the, the angels are there. And it's seen, the, the, this mystery of godliness, this wonder of the gospel was seen by the angels and then proclaimed among the nations. This happened at Pentecost. We know about Pentecost. It happens now. It's happening now in Cyprus. It's happening now around the world. God's gospel, the good news, has been proclaimed to the nations. And it's been believed on in the world. At Pentecost, the thousands that were saved then. And as it continues, there are thousands, there are millions of people who've come to know the Lord as their Savior. And although it might not feel like much is happening here, there's huge things happening around the world in, in China and in Iran and great growth in the Christian church. And it's because people are believing on in the world and around. And then the last part of this, this creed, this doctrine was taken up in glory. Jesus is in heaven, sat at the right hand of God, and he's waiting for us to follow. And this is a snapshot of the gospel. And if you like, Timothy said, this is what you should be teaching. This is what you should be urging. This is what needs to be proclaimed. This is what brings godliness. But the false teachers corrupt it. And, and so many of the false teaching of the world starts by corrupting who Jesus is. So many of, of the big religious systems of the world undermine Christ as being the Son of God. Oh, he's just a prophet. Oh, he's just a good example. Oh, he was some sort of guru. No, he wasn't. He is the Son of God. And what happens with false teaching, normally the first step is for Jesus and who he is to be corrupted and when the teaching of christ gets corrupted so does godliness jesus's example and jesus's teaching is the blueprint of godliness and, and what we have here is this this passage that's telling us that there are false teachers and the false teachers their doctrine doesn't agree with this and, it, and it's a real warning to us all a real warning of what's going on. And so that's why you have to listen carefully while you're being taught. And that's why it's good if you, when you're being taught that you have your Bible open. So when the preacher is preaching and he makes references and he points to God's word, you can go there and you can see it. 
We need to make sure that what we're hearing is when we're being preached and when we're listening to sermons is that is what the Bible is teaching. We need to be like the Bereans. In Acts chapter 17, we meet the Bereans. They were from Berea. And, and these people were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They get a thumbs up. Now, why were they better than the people in Thessalonica? Well, they received the word with eagerness. So they, they were there at the sermons with their notebooks, if they had notebooks then. But they were there. They were listening. They were eager. They wanted to hear it. They weren't coming to the services late. They were coming in good time because they wanted to hear it. They were eager. But they weren't just eager. There was something else. They examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And this is, this is, this is interesting. That Paul went and preached to him. Paul the apostle. And what did they do? They examined the scriptures. Is this really the case? You see, this is what you need to do. You don't just take what the preacher says and say, well, that's it, I'll, I'll go with that. Because the preacher may be a false preacher teaching absolute rubbish. And you need to be discerning. You need to be like the Bereans. And you need to go back to God's word. And, and part of why we have the time on a Sunday evening to discuss things is for this. It gives us opportunity to question what's been said. To, 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 to fill it in, to look at the scriptures, to, to examine it. And this is, this is important all the time, but it's especially important if you're hearing someone preach that you haven't heard before, you're going to a new church situation. Or, or, or you're, you're hearing something, you think, what is that? Examine the scriptures, don't just take it on. There may be a fantastic PowerPoint with all these wonderful things illustrations from nature and magic tricks. But if it's not in God's word, it is worthless and it's pointless. And we need to go back and examine the scriptures. What does a false teacher look like? Well, Paul paints a rather condemning picture, doesn't he? He says that they are puffed up with conceit. And what I think is a tragedy is nowadays being puffed up with conceit seems to be an attribute. We, we, we see this nowadays, don't we? Splashed across the internet. People that are puffed up with conceit. My ministry is bigger than yours. My protocol is better than yours. Look, I have these big men to my left and my right to protect me. Look at... Look at this great auditorium. Look at this great affirmation of who I am. My congregation is bigger than your congregation. My Instagram account has more people than anyone else's. And this is rubbish. That has been puffed up with conceit. And that is not the gospel. And then he goes on and kicks them a bit harder. And says they understand nothing. And friends, when you read and listen to these false teachers against God's word, you sadly realize that they do understand nothing. That there's been so-called pastors proclaiming that the COVID vaccine changes your DNA. And as it changes your DNA, that means that your name is no longer in the Lamb's book of life. Now, quite frankly... 
That person doesn't understand anything. It's not scientific, and it's certainly not theological. And it's been proclaimed from pulpits, and they understand nothing. And, and you have this Christ plus. So it sounds great. Christ is in there. The cross is in there. The crucifixion's in there. And then just a little bit more. You need Christ, but you need to give some money. You need to do that. You need to wear this. You need to worship in that way. Christ plus is wrong and it shows that they understand nothing. And then he goes on and says there's unhealthy cravings for controversy and quarrels about words. We see that in the blogs and the vlogs and all this stuff that's going around in social media, people arguing about things. A little while ago, it was a huge controversy about tithes, wasn't it? And, and it seemed like every pastor in Nigeria was fighting about what a tithe meant and who should pay it. And what's that all about? And so, a parallel passage in 2 Timothy 2, 16, says this to Timothy again, but avoid irrelevant babble, for it will lead people into more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them is Hyphetus and Fetifus, whose names I've just messed up again. They'll forgive me. Who swerved from the truth. They probably won't forgive me, will they? Saying that the resurrection has already happened. Vain babbling. Controversies. There was those people 2,000 years ago that saying the resurrection's already happened, Christ has already come back, for, and what's going on here? And, and it was upsetting people, and it led people into more ungodliness. And so a false teacher looks like that. But what does false teaching produce? Well, it certainly doesn't produce godliness. It, c- it can produce something that might have a pertaining to godliness, like a legalism that makes people have a whole lot of rules that make them look like they're something, but it does not produce proper godliness or anything really close to it. As Paul says, it produces envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion. Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. I'm not sure what's more hurtful there. To be depraved in mind or to be deprived of the truth. Tragic, isn't it? This is the, this is the fruit of false teaching. And then it carries on to say, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Imagining godliness is a means of gain. And and we see people using the church, people using religion, people using fake spirituality to make money. And it was happening 2,000 years ago, and and probably in Ephesus it was uh, along these lines. There's a lot of religious things going on in Ephesus. And Diane of the Ephesians, they sold little trinkets and things. And there was money-making around that whole area there, and it must have been creeping into the church. And people think, how do I make a bit of money out of this? What can I do? What What am I selling? It was happening years ago in the church history when the church sold indulgences. 
It was teaching that people were going into some sort of purgatory sort of area between heaven and hell. And and if you gave the church money, they wouldn't stay there so long and they'd be freed. And people were buying into this. And and quite frankly, it's happening now. It is happening now that people are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And and it's happening in this way that there are pastors that are demanding or promoting that you put a seed offering into the box. Or come up to the front with your seed offering. And if we do it Nigerian, African style, we all come up dancing to the front with our offering, our seed offering. And we're all brought together and we all put our money in this. And why why are we doing it? Because there's going to be future blessing. There's going to be better life. You put dollars in, you get dollars out. You put naira in, you get naira out. Let's make sure we put dollars in. And let's give it. And what's happening? The pastor and his team collect it up and go away in the Mercedes. And you walk home by foot. And that's not godliness. And it's happening around the world. Joel Austin, a net worth of over a hundred million dollars and he said that Jesus died that we might have an abundant life and have it now Now, there's a a truth here because Christ died so that we would have life but it's eternal life it's not got a moment's notice about what happens now This this is not what's important but they're selling this moment as what's important He then went on to say another time, you may make some mistakes, but that doesn't make you a sinner. You've got the very nature of God inside of you. I I, I don't really understand that. You, You sin, that's a mistake, but that doesn't make you a sinner. And there's these lies that are coming out and why is he lying? Because he wants the money. The Dragon's Den is a reality television program in England where there are some very wealthy businessmen willing to invest money in businesses. And it's quite entertaining because people come and pitch their idea of a business to them. Say, so I need this amount of money to, to help me generate and make my business work better. And, and some of these people got really good ideas, and they get the investment. And some of them are just pathetically funny, and we enjoy it. A pastor, Joshua. No, sorry, a pastor, Jonah. There should be a warning sign there, shouldn't there? <laughs> pastor Jonah. From Nigeria, but we'll forgive him of that. Wanted a 200 and 50,000 pound investment to start a new church in London. And he promised these investors a 50, no, a 500% return within the first three years. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Imagine that godliness is a means of gain. He told the dragons, there is no business like God's business.
and they're examples of what's happening. And I think it made Paul sad what he saw. And it should make us grieve of what we see. And it should remind us that there is great gain in godliness with contentment. What is godliness? Godliness is a reverence for God, is to have respect for God. In fact, godliness is not something that we say. Godliness is something that we show, something that we become. Godliness is manifest in action. Godliness is seen in obedience to the words and the teaching of Jesus Christ. There is the negative things that we don't do. We flee from these things. We flee from envy, dissension, and slander. We pursue, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. We are to fight the good fight of faith. You see here, pursue and fight. Godliness is is something that we become through Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit, and it takes action, and it takes serious action. And to pursue something is to really to go after it. Friends, are you really going after godliness? Because you should be. It's not going to happen by accident. You don't pick up godliness by osmosis. You don't pick up godliness by doing some sort of yogic trance and meditating into existence. Godliness happens through the work of the Holy Spirit by you taking on God's word and pursuing righteousness, pursuing godliness, fighting the good fight of faith. To fight means it hurts. To fight means you get involved and you have to get involved with this. And the result of godliness is we have a contentment. Godliness demonstrates itself in contentment. Discontentment is saying to God, you haven't done a good enough job. Did you get that? Discontentment is turning to God and saying, you haven't done a good enough job. We brought nothing into the world And we can't take anything out of the world. You may have heard of the story of the wealthy, the sons of a very, very wealthy businessman in Turkey. And they were looking forward to the inheritance. Sadly, the dad died and the inheritance was forthcoming. But before they were able to get the inheritance, there was a letter that they had to read before the burial. And the letter was read out to them by the, by the legal advisors, and it just simply said this, you will only inherit my wealth if I'm buried with my socks on. The, the, the Muslim tradition is that's not what's to happen. There's not to be clothing on them. Anyway, they, they, they sneaked the socks on, and the imam found out, and the socks were taken off, And he was buried without his socks on. And long in the jaw, the brothers came round to have the second letter read. And the father just said, you can't even take a pair of socks with you. A multimillionaire buried, and he couldn't even take his socks with him. We brought nothing into the world, And we can't take anything out of it. And if we have our everyday needs met, we should be content. That's all we need. 
Contentment is knowing that if I'm not satisfied with what I have, I will not be satisfied with what I want. You may be thinking, if I just have that bit more, then I'll be satisfied. No, you won't. If you're not satisfied now, you won't be satisfied with anything. You see, discontentment comes from what a man is, not from what he does not have. Now, I don't totally agree with that. Because I think discontentment does come from something that he does not have. He doesn't have Christ. He doesn't have godliness. Because if we have Christ and if we have godliness, we will be satisfied. We won't have discontentment. And this really is a message for us now. Because the world operates on discontentment. The iPhone model. Why is there an iPhone model? Why is there an iPhone 3 and an iPhone 4 and an iPhone 5 and an iPhone 6? Why is there that? So that when you look at your 11, you're discontent because there's a 12. And when you look at your 9, you're discontent because there is a 10. Why is that? Why are there all these magazines and and images of beautiful people to make us discontent? The world flows on discontentment. Some people call it marketing. But it's discontentment. And and the next few verses are a commentary on why most of the Africans that find themselves in prison in Lefkosia are there. Verse 9. This is why most of the Africans in prison are there. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. I don't know all the Africans in the prison, but I know quite a few. And I know quite a lot of their stories. And I know that very often the beginning of their story was they wanted to be rich let's not pretend that's not a temptation and the reality is you probably will not end up in prison but this passage doesn't talk about prison does it the warning of this passage is much much worse verse 10 for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Friends, what legacy do you want? Because the legacy of so many is he died trying to be mega rich but not in the faith. Or maybe he died mega rich, but not in the faith. The warning of this passage isn't going to left kosher prison. The warning of this passage is loving money has meant that some people haven't just ended up in prison, may not even have ended up in prison, 
but they have wandered away from the faith. I think, friends, this is harsh teaching, but it's really, really important teaching. And it may not be the application that you want to hear, but it's here. And it's been proclaimed. And friends, if your whole life is being dedicated for what you can get today, to enjoy tomorrow, you've got your eyes set on the wrong thing. Because that will never satisfy you. bring nothing into the world and you'll take nothing out of the world. And what our whole focus should be on is living for eternity, not for now. And if you're living for now, the worst thing that can happen to you is not you losing your riches now. The worst thing that happens to you is you have no faith so that you have an eternity of eternal damnation because your sins haven't been forgiven through Christ. And all that you've enjoyed and all that you've amassed is left in this world and it is wasted time and wasted opportunity. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money. And it doesn't actually say all evil. It says all kinds of evil. And that's probably a better rendition of it. And I think when Paul wrote this, he, 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 he sort of read it again, didn't he? When he read it again, he thought that was a bit hard. And it's hard and it needs to be. But Paul probably also realized that there are some people who are rich. And so there's a P.S., Again, he reads it, there's the amen at the end of the section, and he comes back to it in verses 17 and 18. And he's not saying that being rich is wrong. If God blesses you with wealth, or if you are blessed now with wealth, that's not wrong, that's a blessing, that's a good thing to be enjoyed, but there's a manual of how to enjoy it. But the danger is this, friend, desiring wealth that you haven't got. Because desiring wealth that you haven't got is leading to discontentment. Now get educated, grow, have families, have desires, but don't live your life with the only motivation of getting rich. The only motivation that you should have as a believer is becoming godly. And in your godliness, if he blesses you with riches, thank God. But if he doesn't bless you with riches, thank God. In all situations, thank God. But if you are rich, there's some special teaching for you. So those of you who are rich, keep your ears open. Those of you that want to be rich, you've got it very wrong. But listen in case you are one day. Don't be haughty. The Instagram lifestyle is a haughty lifestyle. It's showing off, and very often it's showing off what you haven't got. But if you've got it, you mustn't show it off because that is haughty. Don't trust your money. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. It can be here today and gone tomorrow. How many millionaires have we been reading about over this last week with just a flick of a button, switch be, uh, swift being turned off, and millions and billions being wiped off people's assets? It happens. You can't trust riches. You can't get out your MasterCard, your Visa, your Amex on your deathbed and say, Doctor, just give me another week, please. You cannot trust in riches. And so if God blesses you with money, don't trust the money. Trust the God of the money. 
And then be generous and ready to share. If you are blessed with resource, be generous with it. And friends, if you haven't been blessed with resource, it's probably because you won't be generous. Yeah, that's quite hard-hitting, that one, isn't it? The people I know that are wealthy are some of the most... The Christian people I know that are wealthy are some of the most generous people I know. And they're almost embarrassed by what they've got. But they're thankful that they can be generous with it. And if God does bless you, be generous. And if he doesn't bless you, why not practice and be generous anyway? Because we're to look out for each other. And then Paul brings it all together and just finishes, grace be with you. And because of time, we're not going to sing our last hymn. I'm just going to say, grace be with you. Let's pray. Almighty God, in this world of discontentment, We plead with you as a church here that you would keep us from false teachers and bless us with good teachers. As a church here, we pray that you would help us to faithfully pray for our teachers and preachers that they may be upheld and enabled to teach the word and to apply it with urgency. And Heavenly Father, as we hear your word, and it is applied to us through your Holy Spirit, we plead with you that you would help us to take it on board. We live in a day and age of great materialism. We live in a time when there is huge discontentment. We live at a time when the world is screaming at us that the most important thing is to be rich and famous. Oh, Lord God, may each of your people here be desirous to be godly. And in their godliness, whether they are wealthy or not, may they be content in you. And in their contentment, may their godliness grow and may their testimony grow and may your name be honored and glorified. Almighty God, keep us from all these pitfalls that we could fall in. And we thank you that we can because your grace will be with us now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen.